Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, For this podcast, I'm going to talk solo um, about gender dysphoria and transgender. And um, the audience for this podcast, well, is any of you that experience gender dysphoria, as well as any of you that are looking to support people that experience gender dysphoria, that might be parents, friends, local leaders. Um, I said a prayer before I started, and I've been thinking about this podcast for the last week and felt impressed to do this. And my hope is that this podcast will bring us together on this space in a better way. Um, This podcast is supportive of the church, the church's teachings, and also supportive of transgender people and their lived experience. So I'd like to start with first, what is gender dysphoria? And the best way I can um, describe this is how it was described to me in episode 46 that I wrote in my book. Um, I'll reference a little bit from the first book I wrote. It's called Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Chapter 8 is about transgender Latter-day Saints. All the proceeds from that book are donated to charity, so everything I do is a self-funded labor of love. Um, But I love this um, definition, and I'll read this because it helped me to understand um, why someone um, feels impressed to transition. And um, have you ever gotten car sick? Car sickness, like other forms of motion sickness, occurs when your inner ears and your eyes disagree about whether you're moving. Gender dysphoria is like that. Awful, nauseated, headache-inducing wrongness from the disagreement of your mind and body. And you feel it every time you wear the wrong clothes or call the wrong pronouns or hear your own voice or look or someone looks at you and sees something you aren't. Every time you look in the mirror, every time you think about yourself, it's like a knife in the gut because it's wrong, wrong, wrong. It's not you, but it won't go away and it won't stop and it hurts. And it hurts like nothing you can imagine and nothing I can describe. It's so bad that I would literally rather die than feel that again, even for a day. And this is Grayson writing this, and Nika, his mom, writes, Lots of times cisgender people describe gender dysphoria as a mismatch between the brain and body, but it underestimates the reality many transgender people experience. For my son, it was distress. It was pain. And unlike car sickness, for four years, I couldn't get out of the car. So as I mentioned on our podcast episode way back in 48, um, they talk more about this, both Nika and Grayson are on the podcast. and. I am cisgender listeners, and most of you are. Most of the world population is cisgender, so just a minority um, people experience this, but I am biologically male and I feel male. I feel none of this dysphoria, Um, but some do, and so that analogy helps me to understand that because I can relate to car sickness. But imagine going back to the 18th century and explaining car sickness to people that had never been in a car. So that's the challenge of people that walk this road is for cis people to understand it. And the best way I've learned to understand this is listening to people. And I also have to develop a framework to be willing to learn. And there's a couple quotes that I, when I talk about this subject in church settings, I share these quotes. One is from my favorite institute teacher, S. Michael Wilcox, quote, 
In some matters, it's better to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure. This will leave us a great deal to be certain about while maintaining a humility to learn. End quote. And then Elder Uchtdorf, um, we can block the growth and knowledge our Heavenly Father intends us. How often has the Holy Spirit tried to tell us something we needed to know, but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew? End quote. So those quotes are, I tried to internalize those as I stepped in this space to be an ally and said, I need to learn um, from trans people to learn about the trans experience. I can't listen to just a few to understand that whole group, and I can't listen to cis people describing that group and it keeps me from developing what I call the trap of unearned opinions and that is the principle of if you're going to develop opinions about a group of people you need to listen to people in that group um, and be willing to learn and grow and understand and I'm not at the finish line in this space um, but I'm just sharing some thoughts now let me just step back a moment and say um I am not coming on this podcast as a church leader prescribing what anybody should do. I'm not a therapist. I'm a business owner. So I'm not coming this from an academic or a clinical expertise, and I don't come this from a church leader. I'm just coming to this space from a rank-and-file fellow human being uh, as a Latter-day Saint trying to bring more understanding to this space. Um, But if things in this podcast you don't agree with, that's fine. Um, if things you agree with, that's fine. It's just my best efforts to try to talk about this space in a way that's helpful for those that experience gender dysphoria. So what does the church have to say about this? Well, about two or three years ago, the church um, developed a website um, with the landing page of transgender. And um, that, to me, is important, that the church has felt impressed to provide ministering tools for those that are experienced gender dysphoria and those that are trying to help them. And the two sections of the website, and I'll link to this in the show notes, is um, supporting others and understanding. And those are just the two sections, but I think those are significant. Understanding is um, sort of, it's talking about just what it means to be trans and supporting is also very helpful for all of us. And um, I like this quote from Elder Rasband. Elder Rasband taught that people experience gender, um, experience transgender feelings need to be encircled in the arms of their Savior and know they loved. So often the Lord calls on us. He expects us to be his welcoming, loving arms. We need to encourage their friends to do the same. So, any everywhere on this page that I look at, um, there is none of there's no attempt to dismiss that this is a reality for somebody. Um, there is no attempt to sort of take politically charged language into this space that sometimes exists in this space. Um, that being transgender is part of a movement. There's this group of people that is trying to confuse cis people into being trans or that there's groomers out there grooming young people that are, that are straight to not be straight. So the church hasn't chosen to step in that space, and I'm choosing not to either. There may be bad behavior 
on some people, um, both straight people and LGBTQ people, but to bring politically kind of charged language into this space to me isn't helpful. Um, and um, I'm going to quote from um, Sister Monica Phillips, who I'll talk about more. Um, and then I'm going to talk, stay on the church's webpage. So this is in my book, The Sister Monica Phillips, who's a mother of a transgender child. I don't believe Satan's work is to deceive people into being LGBTQ. Instead, Satan takes these precious children of God and tells them they're worthless. He tells them there's no place for them in God's plan. He tells them God, God no longer loves them. He resides in their shame. Satan also resides in our fears, knowing that our fears will hinder ability to truly love. His goal is to tear families apart and drive people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is succeeding, not because this group is deceived and are now gay trans. He is succeeding because he is keeping us to, from coming together as the body of Christ and loving with pure Christ-like love. So I like that. I like that thought, and that is my experience meeting with many that experience gender dysphoria. Is that this is a reality in their lives, and sometimes it's tempting to invoke Satan in a way that helps us kind of stay in our. I don't quite know what language to use here that doesn't make anybody feel bad, but our our, our existing bubble of a world reality and not have to deal with the reality that other people are experiencing things different. But part of my baptism covenants as a Latter-day Saint is to bear mourning comfort. And part of that then is to understand the experience of others. Yes, Satan is real and wants to deceive us. I don't want to say Satan isn't real in this podcast, but I generally don't think he confuses straight people to not be straight. Most of the people I know don't want to not be straight, and it's a difficult road, and they've prayed and done everything they can to be straight and fit into a heteronormative world. So I think we need to believe people on how they feel. The church's website doesn't bring in any language or any suggestion that people are making this up or that we shouldn't believe people or that they're being confused by the world. Um, now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. I love these words from Elder Uchtdorf's talk in 2017. Fear rarely has the power to change our hearts and will never transform us into people who love what is right and want to obey Heavenly Father. One of the ways Satan wants to manipulate others is by dwelling on and even accelerating the evil of the world. So fear is um, <clears throat> in the world, and sometimes that enters the political narrative on both sides. And for people to drive home the, the facts, of their, the hopes of their political platform, they bring a fear-based narrative into that that can accomplish a lot. Um, but I think it's not a higher, holier way where we can have a fact-based discussion about our differences without bringing fear. And um, that leads into a quote by Brene Brown. She's not a Latter-day Saint. She's a social scientist. And um, find much of her work very helpful to bring us together. I think she sort of sometimes put language to the teachings of Christ to bring us together as the same human family. Quote, common enemy intimacy is the opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share is simply we hate the same people, the intimacy we experience is intense, immediately gratifying, and an easy ways to discharge our outrage and pain. 
It is not, however, fuel for real connection. So sometimes we create community with how bad the other side is. That can be done in political parties and religion and different environments. And I think a higher, holier way is to just have a fact-based discussion about our differences and, and without a fear-based narrative. Um, when I served in my YSA assignment, some of the YSAs I invited not to watch cable news from both sides because it was just filling them with fear. And um, they could still have a fact-based understanding of political issues uh, without the fear that cable news could bring into their lives. So I just caution us all about the political narrative, cable news, and bringing fear. I certainly look back historically on social issues in my lifetime. I'm in my early 60s, and I can remember the civil rights movement and the things we used to say um, about that. I can't remember that too much firsthand, to be honest, but what I've read, the Equal Rights Amendment, um, the reasons why Black Latter-day Saints didn't have the priesthood, the role of women in society in our church, and a lot of fear-based narrative about keeping us in the way our current worldview. But then as we learned and grew, our worldview has grown, and we've um, moved on from some of those things we used to say. So I just historically look back on how we've handled social issues and look at currently how we're treating trans people, something that's kind of new. And um, I invite us not to have fear, but have love and be willing to listen to trans people before making conclusions about trans people. Now, <clears throat> um, in our, on our website, listenlearnandlove.org, um, there's a, a banner across the top, podcasts, and within that, within that is an index to all of our podcasts. We're over 600 podcasts, so it's obviously hard to keep track of all the podcasts we do. So we have an index there where you can go by... Um, topic. And there's a broad index for LGBTQ and all the stories under that. And then there's a another category for non-LGBTQ where we talk about all the things we've been talking about under that. But under the transgender or non-binary button, we've done a bunch of podcasts. And I want to just mention a few. Um, recently, episode 598, we did Emma Edwin's and that's probably what caused me to do this podcast is I got some feedback on that podcast that um, I just recognize that there's some Latter-day Saints that are uncomfortable with transgender people sharing their stories. Um, but Emma Edwins um, is a convert um, and then left the church for a decade and then felt impressed to come back to the church. But while she was gone, she transitioned. And um, she trans, she's a transgender woman. So she identifies as a woman, Emma. She uses he or her, she pronouns. And she just talks about all these spiritual promptings to come back to the church and be her full authentic self as a transgender woman. And you can listen to the episode 598, but it's been a wonderful experience for her to come back to the ward and the ward council together and um, followed the handbook and decided, you know, what she could, how she could participate in the ward. She is, um, at, you know, at Release Society. She does not have temple privileges on the church's website. Um, in the supporting section, I believe. Remember, there's two sections of that transgender website: understanding and supporting. And supporting talks about some of the restrictions listed in the handbook and. Um, you can go to the handbook, it's online, and read exactly what the church talks about with transitioning. 
but it's a remarkable story of somebody that is as transitioned, um, feels good about her transition, and is also being welcomed in the church. Another one is episode 545, Lauren Harrigan. Um, this is a little different than Emma's story, although Lauren is a transgender woman. She completely transitioned um, before the missionaries contacted her. So she's legally a woman. And the church processes when the missionaries are teaching someone that's fully transitioned is the mission president needs to get first presidency approval. So that was requested and that was granted. And she talks about that in episode 540. Episode 545 is a follow-up to that. And she is, you know, was baptized as a woman. Her church record shows woman. Um, and it has obviously her female name. Now the first presidency came back and said she can be baptized, but she can't have temple privileges. And Lauren was willing to do that. And so I share those stories just to kind of highlight the complexities. On one hand, uh, somebody that's the church, I just, I invite us all to consider that the first presidency um, authorized the baptism of Lauren as a transgender woman into our church. And so I, I, that causes me to pause and think, what message is that sending to all of us about how we should welcome? Um, that's an ordinance, you know, a sacred ordinance that the church holds keys for that Lauren desired, and the church allowed that, and she was baptized. And I think in my social media post, um, you can scroll back on my Facebook or Instagram, you can see pictures of her baptism with the people there, and she's received wonderful support. But the first presidency authorized that. Now, when I posted that on on social media, I got some people that were really supportive of that, and people that felt pretty uncomfortable that the church would authorize um, Lauren to be baptized. They wondered if indeed they had you know, a couple missionaries had gone rogue or something had happened. But nothing had happened. This is just um, work through normal process. So um, I just invite us all to to think about that and figure out and talk, think then if the church is inviting this woman to be baptized, um, what is my responsibility of, as an active validity saint towards people that experience gender dysphoria? So those are a couple episodes I just wanted to mention. Now I'm going to scroll down and just see if there's others here. Um, there is, there's episode 533, Isabel Wheeler, a non-binary Latter-day Saint. Um, binary is where someone obviously is feels male or female. Non-binary is where there's a feeling that I don't identify 100% with either of those. Episode 497 is Brittany, who's cisgender, and Maeve, transgender. So that's Maeve coming out after the marriage is transgender. And in episode 497, they talk about how they're making their marriage work. 486 is BJ um, Nelson, transgender woman. Um, another one is 418, Brie and Kit. Um, Brie talks about her it, gender incongruence. That's the vocabulary she uses. A beautiful woman doing wonderful things. I've gotten to know Brie in a couple meetings, and she, for her experience, feels much better um, emotionally and mentally um, identif you know, identifying as female and taking on female names. Now she understands as a church, she butts up against church teachings in that. And I uh, just invite everybody to make an informed decision with what their personal path is and what church teachings are. Valerie Nicole Green, episode 363, 
is another story of a transgender woman. <clears throat> After Valerie's husband died, um, she came out as transgender woman, has lived in her ward for a long time, and is receiving um, ward support. So you can read, listen to her episode on 363. She's been on other platforms. Wonderful transgender woman is being supported by her ward and um, just more of her story. Um, and when I use her new name, it's just people may wonder why I don't refer to, you know, their past self. And for me, it's just um, part of my baptism covenants and showing grace to somebody to honor how they want to be identified. It doesn't cost me anything to just uh, let somebody identify how they want to identify and call them by that name. I don't think it's going to, I think it helps them go forward and not in a way that's helpful for them. So I don't try to figure out the backstory of, you know, pre-transitioning and should I use that vocabulary. Um, episode 254 is David Smirthwaite, um, wonderful voice in this space. And as I just scan all the podcasts we've done, there's so many different stories that I don't claim to know all the stories or all the answers, but stories change hearts. Brene Brown teaches people are hard to hate, close up, move in. That's certainly been my experience as I've sort of got out of my bubble and have been willing to listen to the experiences of others. And um, so <clears throat> that's a little bit about um, gender dysphoria. Now there's um, some more podcasts I just want to mention. Questions from the Closet. Um, Charlie Bird and Ben Shalotti's podcast is just terrific. And they've had a guest on here. It's uh, If you want to go to season three, episode 17, they've had a guest talking about her experience with gender dysphoria. I understand that's an excellent episode. And then I want to talk about a couple podcasts um, from a um, some LDS families in Arizona. Episode 233 is Corey and Lynette Braddock, their parents of a transgender daughter. And episode 230 is James and Monica Phillips. I read Monica's quote earlier, and they have a transgender son. And they have been working very closely, as along with other couples and families in Arizona, with the local LGBTQ organizations to pass legislation that the church supports and also supports LGBTQ people. And um, their efforts led to, in early 2022, um, many people being invited to the open house of the Washington, D.C. temple. So think about, just remember that open house, how our church leaders invited people um, to be part of that and to be invited. So I'm going to read and from a Desert News article um, written by Tad Welch, Tad Walch on April 27, 2022, and I'll link to this in the show notes. Um, Latter-day Saints sat peacefully with dozens of LGBTQ advocates in the Celeste Room of the Washington, D.C. Temple last week during a special private tour uh, of the church holiest space, which is normally closed to the public. So. That in itself is worth pausing, and um, the church, rightly so, feels pretty um, has strong feelings about the sacredness of the celestial room. I feel the same way. This is an undedicated celestial room, but they proactively invited um, LGBTQ advocates 
to be a part of that. I think that sends a message about how we should treat LGBTQ people. If the church is proactively inviting people into our um, temples during a temple tour, I'm going to read a little bit more from this this article. Um, Over the previous two weeks, apostles and other church leaders and representatives has provided private tours to invite us guests. The tours and subsequent meetings were especially were special for Equality Arizona Soto, who grew up a Latter-day Saint. <clears throat> and this is um, Michael Soto, quote, We have built such a wonderful relationship with everyone in this coalition that it's like seeing family when we get to be in the same room with each other, he said. End quote. Soto's friendship and leadership in the entire coalition are important to James and Monica Phillips, Latter-day Saint parents of two LGBTQ children in Mesa, Arizona. They were part of the temple tour. Um, this is James Phillips. Quote, Michael's a great contributor and it brings a contributor in that he brings people across lines. There's not many forums we could sit down with people from both sides and talk about solutions in the middle that will actually affect change, where we can see lasting changes that affect all those things that are precious to us. So it was an opportunity we couldn't pass up not only as parents, but as passionate advocates in that space, end quote. And then Monica Phillips said her family is central, so her focus is on loving her children and trusting God. She says, it was a dream come true being in the room with my LGBTQ friends and my church. Soto said the church leaders are setting example in public policy. Quote, I love how the church is modeling what being a good citizen is what being an active participant in a pluralistic society and democracy is while still adhering to your core beliefs, he said. That's the beautiful part. None of us have changed our core beliefs. We developed this amazing coalition, partnership, and deep friendship. That's what we need more, and this comes from today. Latter-day Saint lesbian, gays, bisexual, and transgender and queer people, queer people have a historical understanding about an important principle to minority groups, Soto said. When you get to know someone for who is any type of an identity or lived experience, then you start to care about that person. It changes the way you treat not just the person, but the whole group they're affiliated with. So Michael Soto is somebody that, along with the Braddocks and the Phillips and everybody that's involved, I know I'm not I'm including all the names that um, were part of that, uh, Michael came on episode 526 on our platform and just talked about his experience. Now, Michael is a transgender man. He's somebody that no longer participates in the Latter-day Saint Church, but is respective. And the church invited, a, you know, think about this for a second, a former Latter-day Saint or a non-participating Latter-day Saint transgender man to be a part of this. And I think that tells us how we should treat people that have, are not participating in our faith. Um, like Michael isn't, but working to do good in society as well as those that are LGBTQ and include them as the same human family. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, I also want to just talk about transitioning. So um, this is kind of trans, this is kind of gender dysphoria 101 but it was helpful for me when I first stepped in the space. There's 
there's three types of transitioning. So if bottom of the iceberg stuff is someone experiences long-term gender dysphoria, then they want to deal with the car sickness. So the car sickness is the process of dealing with that pain that we talked about that the Moors described. And so there's social transitioning, which is pronouns and names. There is legal transition, which is changing um, your birth certificate to be a different gender. And there's medical transitioning, which is hormones and then surgeries. And on the church's website, it, it's pretty clear on what butts up against church teachings. And they call that then member restrictions if you go past um, certain levels of transitioning. And it talks a little bit about what would happen. And um, I've talked to some wonderful local leaders that have reached out, and there's really thoughtful local leaders um, that recognize this is the reality for some of their ward members, and they're trying to do the best they can. And I just invite us to to try to come together and support each other in this complicated space. And they're on the side of grace and support and love, and also to follow church teachings. So now I'm going to talk about those of you. Um, this is sort of if somebody, you know, came to my home and I wanted to talk about their gender dysphoria, this would be my advice. Um, let me just take a little drink. Um, the first thing I'd say is I'm not a therapist and I'm not a church leader and I really have no standing except as a friend to give you any advice. Um, the first thing I would teach is the iceberg principle. It's what a therapist taught me when I was trying to better help some of the YSAs understand sort of the bottom of the iceberg of what kind of things they were experiencing. And um, for most people that, ex that are transitioning or considering transitioning, the bottom of the iceberg is long-term gender dysphoria. And they've gotten to that point through going slow by talking to um, a therapist, the church on the website talks about how to find a therapist. And I think the general principle there is to find one that has experience in the space that will let you sort of thoughtfully chart your own path. There's some therapists out there that are going to want everybody to transition social, legal, and medical with the first sign of any gender dysphoria at any age. Now, that's kind of an extreme example, but there are therapists out there that probably would do that and would walk somebody through all that transitioning. There's probably therapists on the other extreme, no matter how deep and how painful and long-term the gender dysphoria wouldn't recommend any transitioning. So I think you've got to find a therapist that is going to help you do this the best way for you that you can do this and not bring any sort of outside or personal agenda to the table. I call that per the principle of self-determine that will work with you to help you self-determine your best path forward. And um, so that's just the way I look at finding a therapist. I'd also, if you're um, you know, not an adult, or even if you're an adult and you're close with your parents, is involve your parents in this um, so that they can help you as your parents, especially if you're minor age, to make thoughtful decisions. So back to the iceberg, I think this is the most delicate part of the podcast for me to do, listeners, and I get pretty tenderhearted, and I don't quite know how to do this without causing anybody pain, and the last thing I'd want to do is cause anybody pain. Um, I, 
I think every the people I've met with, I'm confident the bottom of their iceberg is long-term gender dysphoria. And um, but there are probably some cases, and I've um, read stories of people that probably the bottom of their iceberg was not long-term gender dysphoria, and it was something else. I don't want to speculate what that was, but it's more likely perhaps to occur with a young person um, that may find belonging or community, and this may be introduced to them as a way to find belonging or community or acceptance, um, being trans and transitioning, when at the bottom of the iceberg is a different, um, something different going on. And so in saying that, I don't want that part of this podcast to be weaponized against people that truly experience long-term gender dysphoria and saying, aha, you know, Richard Osler said, it's fake. I didn't say that. I just said, it's, people need to go slow and figure out what the bottom of the iceberg is. Now, there's going to be voices, you know, out there that are going to pull you in one direction or another, but I think you've got to figure out and work with a therapist, prayer, personal revelation, um, your local leaders, and figure out what's going on at the bottom of your iceberg. And if indeed it's long-term gender dysphoria, then I think you've got to go slow. So the next thing I'd say is go slow. And, and some, and some can go slow. They, especially if they're not an adult, they, Their dysphoria is not so overwhelming that they're suicidal or that they're, and they're able to function. And so they can go slow. And if you can go slow, I'd invite you to go slow. And whatever forks in the road that represent possible transition, push those forks of the road out if you can, so that you just understand who you are, understand the best path for you, hear stories. But I like what the church says is you got to author your own story or write your own story. So don't hear somebody else's story and say, that's my story. This is how I solve, this is how I deal with my long-term gender dysphoria. Write your own story through personal revelation. Now, <clears throat> if somebody says, okay, I've, I've felt long-term gender dysphoria and I feel like this is the path I need to go and it crosses church teachings. This is how I would handle that. And I'm not a local leader, so I don't have to be the one to sort of enforce church teachings. But I would say to that person, I'd say, okay, I would always invite you to follow church teachings. But if you feel your best path forward is to cross some of these church teachings, I will walk with you. My relationship with you won't change. I will continue to love you. And that's just what I would do as a fellow Latter day Saint if somebody transitions and even if that transitioning crosses over church teachings now some of those put membership restrictions so they can still i think everybody that's transitioning is still welcome at church but they may not be able to hold a calling they may not be able to go to the temple and i'm not going to go through the list of those things you can go check that out on the church's website we'll link to so that's just the way i'd handle that um and some would feel that's too affirming some feel that's not affirming enough um, so you can disagree with the way I handle that, and I'll give you space to do that um, because it's just it's a that's just it's just a difficult road. Um, but I would honor the agency of somebody, and so go slow. 
Um, push those forks in the road further out. I like making faith-based decisions versus fear-based decisions. It's a principle my wife and I tried to teach in our family is fear-based decisions are sort of responding to outside voices, responding to not being your very best personal self, or responding to sort of a, a, a reaction to a situation versus faith-based decisions are, okay, this is what's right for me. I am going to now write my own story and author my story and totally own it because no one's telling me what to do. I'm not writing my story as a reaction to somebody else's response into my story. I'm writing my story based on what I know to be right for me or the best thought about I write to me and I totally own it. I'm not, you know, responding to somebody else. And I think that's a better framework to move forward. Now, if those forks in the road are far enough out there. Well, let me say this a different way. If you're emotion, if you're suicidal, um, trigger warning, please text or call 988 if you're suicidal right now. Please, you have to live another day. Your older self will be glad you lived. Um, I promise it gets better. Even if there's no light at the end of the tunnel right now, um, people I've talked with that were close to suicide have always felt better that they didn't die by suicide. So you've got to find a way to live one day at a time. I promise your older self would look at your younger self right now and take you to the mountaintop of your older self and see all the good you've done. So please stay. It's the whole reason I'm in this space, listeners, is because of the suicide of a teenager, a gay teenager in Davis County. That was the whole thing that drew me into the space is to prevent, do everything in my power to um, prevent LGBTQ suicide. So if you're suicidal and you're feeling gender dysphoria and you feel your only path is to start transitioning, um, transition. Don't die by suicide. Involve people in your decision to transition. Um, Still go slow. Maybe you can start with social transitioning. Um, Stuff that's easier to just start and stop and get a feel for. Is this helpful for your mental health? Work with the therapist. Have a timeline in place. Hopefully, especially if you're younger, your parents are walking with you. Um, I I don't want anybody to die by suicide, and I don't want this podcast to increase the suicidal ideation in anybody. So once again, I'm inviting you to push those forks um, in the road further out where your very best personal self, especially if you're an emotional, if you're in an emotional, sustainable place. But if you're not, and you feel like it, I need to start to transition now to get to deal with the car sickness, then please transition and work with people to help you do that in the most responsible way. Now, let me read. Um, as I mentioned, my first book is called Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And chapter eight is called Transgender Latter-day Saints. And it's the only chapter where I dedicated a whole chapter to just one letter in the LGBTQ um, spectrum because it's such a different experience. And I think we've highlighted that out. Those that are gay, lesbian, or bisexual, that's about sexual orientation. This is about gender identity. It's completely different, even though it's under the queer or the LGBTQ. So some of my trans friends sort of get left behind because most of the conversation in this space is about gay people, perhaps even, and probably more gay men than gay women. 
So I've always worried that the voices of transgender Latter-day Saints, um, kind of, we don't hear them as quickly and it's easier to make jokes about trans people because we don't know as many trans people. And I've heard some of those jokes and I cringe, but anyway, chapter eight, um, and I'm not trying to sell books. <laughs> I'm on page 254, and I've kind of said this, but I'll just read from my book. Um, the title of this section is Go Slow. My advice for those experiencing gender dysphoria is to go slow. Work with the therapist, involve your family and church leaders, and seek personal revelation. There are some voices from society that prescribe a path that includes fully transitioning. Only hearing those voices may lead someone with gender dysphoria to conclude their, this is their path. Detransitioning is the cessation reversal of transgender identification or transition. Um, there are stories of those who have transitioned and later regretted the decision and detransitioned. Those who detransition may continue to experience gender dysphoria. Being aware of these stories is helpful to make a more informed decision and seek personal, personal revelation with an eye to the long term. Now, um, I would invite you to listen to stories of those that detransition and to understand why they transitioned and why they detransitioned as part of your journey to make a more informed decision. I do worry sometimes those stories are weaponized. What I mean by that is people that have detransitioned, um, those stories are sent to people with gender dysphoria or transitioning and saying, your experience is not authentic. And what you're doing is wrong because there's a story of someone that's detransitioned. So I, that's just the way I handle that. Um, also, um, there's a political um, overtone of the whole trans, of those that experience gender dysphoria, transgender. And I've heard some terms about, you know, the transgender movement or that um, this is grooming our kids. And I'm uncomfortable with that kind of vocabulary, because I think it polarizes us. Um, I'm uncomfortable with the grooming. You know, we've used that in a way, it's kind of the fear-based stuff that Brene Brown or even Elder Uchtdorf talked about. We can have a fact-based discussion, a political discourse without bringing in a movement, like there's this organized movement, they are coming after you to make your um, cisgender straight kids gay or trans. Um, or there's groomers out there. Now, some may disagree with me on that. And I would, I would guess that there are situations where there are people in a manipulative way um, pushing people to transition. Um, but I would think those are the exceptions. And, and I would just encourage us not to sort of get into the, the divisive political rhetoric around this. I recognize that there's legislation around high school transgender women in particular participating in high school sports. There's legislation about what parents can and can't do as far as medical transitioning with their minor children and what doctors can and can't do. And I'm not going to get in the middle of that. Um, more of this is just helping individual people um, that experience long-term gender dysphoria make their way forward and for the rest of us to better support them and understand them. So um, that is my advice to those that, you know, that are feeling gender dysphoria. And just to recap is do this as your very best personal best. Um, figure out if it's long-term gender dysphoria. 
sort of get a feeling what works for you. I've done so many stories. Um, I've done a story with an LDS man who still identifies as man, male, sorry, still married to his wife, takes estrogen. Um, that's all he needs to sort of deal with the gender dysphoria. And, um, and that, in that case, I believe is consistent with church teachings because he has no, no plan to transition. Now the church website gets into that, the handbook on when um, hormones are appropriate and not appropriate. And so you can read up on that. But it just, there's just a lot of different stories in the space. And that's why if you're actually in the space and experiencing gender dysphoria, You've got to figure this out for yourself, working with a support group around you, sort of like a team. I'm thinking of an Olympic athlete. You're kind of warriors like Olympic athletes walking a really difficult road, but you need a core team around you of trusted people. And their goal is to help you make the best decisions for yourself. They don't have necessarily their own personal agenda for you, but they just want the best for you. And they want you to make the most thoughtful decisions for you, for your long-term emotional health, for your success, and in a way that you fully own this decision. So if something doesn't work out, you can't point to anybody in your support team and say, you told me to do this. You own that decision. That's part of, I think, our doctrine is, is personal agency and that you have to choose. Um, so I'm kind of rehashing this same point again, going slow figuring out what the bottom of your iceberg is, write your own story, author your own story, own it, but be okay with changing your story. I think that's part of um, going slow is if you do start some level of transitioning to take some time, journal about it, um, be thoughtful with your core support team. Is this helping me? Is this not helping me? Um, The goal here is to deal with long-term gender dysphoria and to take that edge off so that you can function in society as a healthy, emotionally healthy adult, you have a lot to contribute in society, Um, which leads me to, and these aren't very well scripted. I don't have a big script listeners, Um, but I want to talk about, if I can find this, the body of Christ. Although I just found something I wanted to, this is, I could have shared this at the beginning of the podcast. This is kind of a go back. Um, but I, when I speak about this subject, just to build some, maybe I don't understand everything. I try to take us all back to 1967. Most of you weren't alive in 1967. I was six years old, and I don't remember this obviously firsthand. But in 1967 at the Boston Marathon, Catherine Schweitzer, a woman, this isn't a trans story. This is a woman, um, doesn't have a trans theme, I should say. Was trying to run the Boston Marathon. The race officials got wind of this, and as she's running, they're running after her. And I can see a picture here of trying to rip off number two sixty one, her number. And she ended up outrunning the race officials, and she had a support team around her that knew she could run this, and she finished the marathon. And um, then in twenty seventeen, fifty years later, Catherine Schweitzer ran the Boston Marathon. Guess what? In the same number, two sixty one. But in 2017, no one batted an eye about a woman running a marathon. So what changed? Well, I think we heard stories of women that ran marathons, and some of you are women that ran marathons. And so this societal assumption we had made about women and their ability to run marathons, we learned was not correct. Now, in 1967, with all due respect, I 
I don't want to, this isn't a humorous point. God knew that women could run marathons. And we just didn't have a, the science now understands that women can run marathons. Um, and we have personal experiences. So is it possible that in 50 years from now, we'll all look back to this time and say, wow, I wish I could have been kinder to trans people because now I know trans people. In fact, even the science is helping me to understand why someone feels this long-term gender dysphoria. And I wish I could have a do-over and just be kinder and not make trans jokes and tell them I love them and support them. So, you know, that's just a thought. You can, um, you can like that or not like that. Um, I do like um, the body of Christ in Corinthians 12. So this is in the New Testament, Paul. And I'll read Corinthians 12, 21 through 23. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more these members of the body, which seems more feeble or necessary, and those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow more honor. And that's the end of the scripture. And then I write here in my slide, we can't become the church God wants us to be because to become without our LGBTQ members. They bring unique gifts and contributions. So as I've met um, Transgender Latter-day Saints, my heart is sort of broken and grown. And um, we have a responsibility, I think, as the body of Christ to reach out to the ones that are the most marginalized. I don't think God marginalized them. I think society did. But it's our job to bring them into full inclusion. Not only is that good for them, but it's good for all of us because they bring unique gifts and contributions. And my trans friends are some of my spiritual heroes for the work they've done um, in their lives to be able to move forward with very unique circumstances that often many don't understand. And they become the wounded healer. And I read this quote quite a, quite a bit on the podcast from Henry Noren. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led to the desert by someone who's never been there. So for you that are trans or in the LGBTQ world, um, you're some of my heroes. Steve Young, I hear him talk sometimes. He calls me his warriors for sort of the woundedness you feel in mortality um, because you're a minority. You're a gender minority or a sexual minority in a heteronormative world. And it's hard to feel like you belong, and it's hard to feel like you need it. But um, this process that you go through sometimes brings incredible Christ-like attributes into your lives to be able to love, support, and you have this ability to bring others on the margins and understand the unique road they're walking. So I share that if for those of you that are kind of in a tough spot and wondering about your future. And I think if your older self could talk to you and say, if you can kind of get through this really tough spot, figuring out um, how to deal with your long-term gender dysphoria, then you're going to be okay. And you'll actually be able to help more people, um, as many of my guests had. Now, here's Michael Soto. Yes, he doesn't participate in the church, but he's respectful of the church. But look at all the things that he's done, including being invited by senior leaders of our church to the Washington, D.C. Temple Open House. So um, hang in there if you um, are a gender minority or a sexual minority, and write your own story. 
Now, I'm just looking through my notes to see if there's anything else I wanted to share. There's a couple things here I come up. Um, one of the things that um, can be divisive if we look at it through a political lens is the pride flag or the pride colors. And for some, that represents sort of an LGBTQ agenda to to confuse straight people into being queer. And for some, it represents just I want to communicate to people that I'm a safe person so they'll open up about their lives to me. And I err on the second side. Um, an example of how that worked for me is I remember in the end of my YSA assignment um, saying kind things about LGBTQ people on social media. That's sort of equivalent to flying a pride flag or pride colors. And what happened was fascinating for me. Um, actually, no more LGBTQ people came out, but straight members of the wards said, okay, I can talk to this guy. If he's going to show um, kindness towards queer people, he can handle what I need to talk to him about. So it's a way a lot of committed Latter-day Saints look at the pride flag as not a political statement, not a movement, not an attempt to change the world, but just, I am a safe person. So when I hear a story of a teacher, unless it's against school policy um, or a family um, showing the pride flag, I would just invite us to all look at why they're doing that. And most of the time, it's out of love. They may have an LGBTQ family member. They just may want to signal to anybody in their circle that they are a safe person, if they're LGBTQ or just anything. And I think that's a principle of parenthood. If you've got kids at home, you want to do things to signal to your kids that they will open up to you about the realities of your life. And if your family culture is constantly harping on the other political party or harping on whatever group of people, that creates common enemy intimacy in the family and bonds the family together. But long-term, that may unravel as your kids need um, to be op able to open up about the realities of their lives. We tried to teach our kids correct principles, but also said, you know, this is how we'll respond if you open up about porn use or if you open up about swearing or open up about drug use or if you're not straight. We didn't do a, as good a job as I like to do now if I could go back because our kids are out of the house. But I think I'd say have those conversations sort of like it's sort of the principle of the pride flag or the pride colors is I am a safe person as a parent. I'm speaking as a parent now or a friend for you to open up. And so if we're a local leader or a parent, there's a principle there. I'm not inviting everybody to fly the pride flag or the pride colors, but I'm inviting people to think, what can I do to signal in my circle of influence that I'm a safe person so that if somebody, and it takes so much courage sometimes for people to come out if they're not straight or they're working through a difficult issue, um, like a possible addiction or whatever, um, people do better. Shame then isolates them. I think Satan doesn't win. Yet, if we sin, he really wins if he can keep us separated from God and from people and keep us kind of in this whirlpool. Now, sin is different than identifying, than being LGBTQ. I don't want to put those in the same bucket. But shame is the same thing that Satan can do to keep us isolated, not getting help. So that's just some thoughts on the pride flag, the pride colors. We also have a Facebook group I'll link to in the show notes. It's called Ministering to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. There's about 3,500 in there. and its goal is what can we do on the local level to better support LGBTQ Latter-day Saints? 
So there's a lot of members of the church all over the world that are part of this group that are working on fifth Sundays or firesides or, you know, it's a group that's supportive of the church, leaders and doctrine, but what can we do um, in our wards and in our stakes or our areas of influence and institute class to create more support, a seminary class for LGBT Latter-day Saints. A lot of people will post in there and um, sort of as a sounding board to get feedback from others that are already doing stuff in their ward or stake or, or areas of influence. Um, I just see a lot of effort being done at the local level, ward and stakes on, okay, Zion is creating, um, to me, Zion was sameness, listeners. I grew up in a place where everybody was the same, same religion, same political party. We all lived in the same rambler type homes. I didn't really know anybody that was single or divorced or anybody that was queer. And Zion to me is, is different than that. It's bringing all of our beautiful uniqueness and gifts together to lift the hands of the poor. And we need diversity. Elder Cook talks about unity and diversity and um, I wonder if the city of Enoch had some diversity in there um, as far as being translated. But we know one of the things is there was no poor among them. So they were unified. And so I think of our hearts knit together as talked about the Book of Mormon and taking all those, um, the visual of a heart, and that's the visual of my second book, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture, which is a heart made of different color yarn knit together. And so I love the idea that we're meant to be a diverse people. A Zion people is not a sane people, but it's a diverse group of people unified in our goal to help others. And I think we're good at that as Latter-day Saints, but I think we can be better at that as if we fill everybody as a place with us. So I love that concept of creating Zion and expanding the borders of Zion. Charlie Bird has a new book with that title, um, Expanding the Borders of Zion. So um, that's a little bit about Zion, expanding the borders of Zion. I also think about, and I've talked about this in the podcast, is um, President Nelson talks about the gathering of Israel. I love that. And I think of um, that couple praying for the missionaries to knock on their door, or maybe in the day of social media, to find them on social media so that they can hear the message of the restored gospel. And I also think about queer members that are sitting in our families and in our congregations, wondering if they are welcome here. And they need to be flooded with positive messages about queer people. We need to end the jokes about gay people or trans people. That has no place with us as a Zion people. Jesus would never do that. But we need to proactively say and normalize that and um, so that everybody knows they're welcome. And sometimes that comes the pride flag or the pride colors or a pride tat flag a necktie. Everybody needs to figure out the right way to do that. Um, but we need our LGBTQ members to feel welcome. And not only that they fit in, but they belong and we're better off with them. Um, you know, it, I feel like it's testimony meeting, but um, you ought to know why I believe in the church. And I'm, I'm a marketing guy, so I think feature and benefit. So when someone says Joseph Smith's a prophet, the church is true. It's been restored. To me, I agree with all those. Those are sort of statements of a feature, but the benefit sort of is the marketing aha for me. And so when I think of Oreo cookies, this is a poor analogy, but Oreo cookies have a bunch of features, but the benefit is I feel better, at least for a period of time after eating a few Oreo cookies. And so the 
the benefit of those statements about Joseph Smith, the church, is that we have unique doctrine that came through the prophet Joseph Smith, a plan of salvation that gives context for a sometimes wounded mortality, um, that helps me understand a pre-earth life, why we're here, sort of the 40,000 foot level of the in, in inequality and inconsistencies of mortality and the unfairness and the wounding, and um, a post-earth life, a savior that can not only take away sin, but can heal wounded hearts because of his atonement. I think a primary missionary message would be um, we can help heal your wounded heart through our understanding of Jesus Christ as revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith. So to me, the benefit is the healing power of the atonement and how we have unique insights and through the restoration of, of Jesus Christ, the Book of Mormon. Um, but the benefit there is it's in, it added insights into the life of Christ and charity and compassion and how to be a better person. Um, priesthood and priesthood keys that give ordinances power. Um, so there's a list of things there. Um, heavenly parents that love us, um, that will always love us, that gives us meaning that we're divine spirit children of heavenly parents. That doctrine also came through the prophet Joseph Smith that gives me peace in mortality, that they love me. And that love um, doesn't come and go. Nothing I believe I can do can change my worth. My worthiness can change to go to the temple, but my worth is set because I am a child of heavenly parents. So that's sort of my testimony while you're listening, and I've got your ear here on why I stay a Latter-day Saint um, and also deal with the incredible complexities of the intersection of LGBTQ and LDS. There's a lot of pain in this space that sometimes is consuming for me and overwhelming for me. And uh, my wife knows I go on long walks in the morning to sort of um, process all that and gets me going for another day. I'm grateful for my wonderful wife that walks aside me um, and helps me manage the complexities of this space I'm in. But in closing, because I never can quite close these things and sign off quickly, so I'm sorry. Um, just act on the impressions that you felt in this podcast that are helpful for you. Not 20, not 30, just maybe one or two that help you on what you need to do. Um, and if there were things that you didn't agree with, that's fine. My goal is not to get agreement on everything I said or every podcast I do, but just have a conversation about this really tender subject in the very best way I know how, because I believe talking about it and hearing stories helps bring us together versus not talking about it and ignoring the issue. So I hope this is helpful, listeners. And this is Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.